Hello, thanks for joining us on Technical Roundup. We've got a very exciting episode today. We're joined by Max Bonin of B2C2 Group, which is one of the biggest crypto market-making firms, period, especially from, one of, from the multi-jurisdictional point of view. I'm sure we'll hear more about that. Uh, we have a broad range of topics to discuss, uh, especially focusing on Grayscale, the GBTC premium discount, what's going on. Uh, we'll hope to give you a decent, decently comprehensive um, breakdown of this topic. I'm joined, of course, by Max, as well as my co-host, Donald. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. How's everyone doing? I'm all right. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here uh, on your channel. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to this a lot. Likewise. Fantastic. So before we jump into the juicy details, Max, you want to give us a bit of this is always the most boring part of podcasts. I'm sure you may have listened to some. They're like, oh, tell us how you got into crypto. And it just goes on this like 20-minute lecture, which people usually skip to get to the content. Uh, but in your case, your background is very interesting. Um, where do you come from? What do you do? Anything you want to share from the outset? Yes, I started trading um, sort of by mistake. I had my first internship at Google, and I was quite young at the time. I was just 19. And Google, had, they had an internal prediction market, like Augur is uh, you know, tried to do. Um, and the employees could bet on some events related to Google, such as the number of employees that Gmail, sorry, the number of users that Gmail would have, let's say, a year from now. And they were trying to aggregate what everyone thought by having some sort of trading game where you could bet on those events. You can think of that as binary options. And I created a, a little bot because I found there was a sort of a way to make free money. <laughs> I didn't know what you would call that, but I figured out later, oh, that's what arbitrage means. So I started arbitraging the, the, the Google internal market, and I became the number one trader there with my little butt. Um, I was not a finance guy. I was really more like um, um, more of a maths guy, I suppose, and, and science-y guy. And I thought it was quite fun. Obviously, it was all play money. You could win a teddy bear or something <laughs> like that. But after my internship, I thought, well, maybe there's a way to do this with you know real money right maybe there's there's a way a platform i could find and i actually did find such a platform it was called intrade.com it was very famous at the time maybe some of you guys remember it there's actually the the last ceo of that platform he is in crypto now i think he's, he's running one of the prediction markets or, or something like that decentralized um but at the time that platform was super famous for allowing people to bet on the us elections and, and a couple of events like that, like the Academy Awards. And in 2008, it had predicted the platform because of the wisdom of the crowd and everyone trading state by state perfectly the US election of, if I remember, it was Obama versus John McCain, I guess. And it, they got a lot of traction like that and lots of trading activity. And I was one year after my internship. So I thought, well, I'm going to create a model that's going to be smarter than other people. And I'm going to, you would say now, I'm going to take, I'm going to be a taker. And a couple of days before I rolled out my sort of silly, simple algorithm, the main market maker on that platform, he just gave up. He said, guys, on the, we had forums at the time. It was sort of um, the way that people interacted. Um, he said, I'm not making any money here. It's not worth it. I'm just, I'm just giving up. And that kind of, that sucked for me because I didn't, I had my algo. I relied on liquidity in the market and it got me thinking, well, if I think my my sort of mid, my my fair value is good, maybe I ought to be making the market actually. So that's how I got into it. I, at the time I was you know, 19, 20, something like that. And um, I, I was a student. 
So what was quite important to me also, considering I went to a big party school, actually, <laughs> that um, I didn't want to be in front of screens all day. So I made it very automated from the get go. And that's also why, you know, nowadays with B2C2, everything started out, it's got to be super automated. Um, so I had, a, I had a very good run on that platform before, incidentally, it was actually shut down almost by the CFTC because the CFTC told them, guys, those all those contracts that you have, really they're like derivatives. Because um, you also had financial stuff, you could bet on gold and, and the S&P, um, uh, the, the Dow Jones. And the CFTC said, you have to stop accepting US citizens. And US users, obviously, they accounted for perhaps like 80% of the of the business there. So that was kind of the, the platform went through a slow death. And then, and I thought about that a couple of days ago, actually, the founder of the platform, he actually died climbing the Everest. And that got that I, I was reminded of that because of Quadriga, that exchange in Canada where the guy supposedly died in, in India. Of course. And yeah. at the world, the similarities are crazy, right? It's it's um it's a bit strange. Um, so that was the end of the platform. They went bankrupt. Thankfully, I was able to get my money out. Uh, also, some sort of parallel with crypto. It was kind of like the mongox of prediction markets. A bunch of people lost money, and, and the big investors in the bankruptcy turned out to be like Paul Tudor Jones, Stan, Stanley Druckenmiller, and, and some big guys like that. Um, and after that platform died, my flatmate at the time, he was a, he was a quant at Goldman. I, I was a, a rates trader um, uh, um, back then. He told me, you, you ought to look into Bitcoin because those, those algos you used to have, and maybe you, should, you could do something with that new Bitcoin thing. And that was late, 20, late 2012. So late 2012, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, that Bitcoin thing, what's that? It's like an asset. It's not got any sort of fundamentals. We, we don't really know what the value is. But I guess maybe what I used to do, Obama versus John McCain, it's not really got fundamentals either. It's, just, it's a, a, a beauty contest. And so I started... Um, Tweak, uh, tweaking the algos a little bit to make them compatible with Bitcoin. And, and if I started, I, I started Among Us, lost a bunch of money when the price, when there was a crash from like 260 to 70 or something like that. Um, then I, uh, there was another where they went bankrupt. So that, uh, that that's, uh, you know, I was not so excited anymore after I lost something like 30 grand, which was a lot of money at the time for just, you know, an analyst at, at a bank. Um, and it's in, in 2014, that I started uh, being more active again, recoding on the weekends, trying to, to do something again. And in early 2015, I left my job, started doing that full time. I, I created like the B2C2 entity, hired a friend, Flavio, who's the co-founder with me. And, and yeah, and we quickly became the biggest market maker in crypto. Initially was like, Mon um, uh, no, Mongo was gone, but uh, Bitstamp, then we had Bitfinex. Um, and uh, OKCoin was quite big. You had the Chinese exchanges with the CNY trading that lasted a, maybe a year uh, there before they got shut down. Um, and yeah, and fast forward a couple of years, we opened the big OTC desk and now we're, yeah, we're part of the ecosystem. Sorry, I made it 20 minutes like all your other guests. <laughs> no, really no, sorry. not at all. Um, yeah. So you've been around for a while, right? That, that's probably the, the first thing to draw from that. Um, experienced participant. And so... What does how would you describe the main day-to-day -day workings of B2C2 right now? Well, so it's all about the machine. It's all about the machine. Um, we wanted stuff to be automated as well because if you want to make money in automated fashion, you want to be 24-7 because you don't know when the market's going to move. You don't know when there's going to be an opportunity. So early on, because Flavio and I, we lived in Europe, 
we wanted to be you know, there for the Asian session, US session. So everything was all automated. Um, in fact, our biggest day uh, when we started, that was in August 2015, we had a flash crash on Bitfinex. The price went from something maybe like $400 to $200, a, a big move at the, uh, well, even at the time. And we woke up, we had made $8,000 in one uh, overnight. And we used to make something like $8,000 a month for uh, the couple of months that we had be tra been trading. And we thought, oh, hold on a second, that's nice actually. The systems, they're able to withstand a big flash crash and, and not get run over. So that was always part of the philosophy. Everything's got to be automated. So a normal day at B2C, you, you have a, a team of quants and traders, well, quant traders, because most of our traders, bar one, they're, they're all coders as well. And some of them are more researchers. So a quant researcher is going to work on machine learning models and, and the like. The more quant traders are more going to be finessing with the models, changing parameters as the market moves a little bit, just kind of monitoring risk, right? Clicking some buttons. Uh, really, we're all just fancy button pushes. And, um, and then you've got sales, obviously, for the client business, which represents uh, the, the biggest part of, of, of what we do. Um, middle office, obviously, to support client activity. Um, a compliance department, um, but most of the most of the the company focuses on uh, around tech, where we've got yeah quant quant traders, quant devs, and pure devs working on on improving the algos, getting the latencies down, you know, getting the network faster. It's really very similar to what you would find at a normal HFT, plus uh, a sell side bank because we've got the 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 client business. I think the difference is that the tech in crypto is a little bit different. We're not really fighting the same war that uh, firms in conventional markets are. Uh, so that, that adds a twist, which I think is kind of cool, actually, especially given crypto is a, like a, a bit of a level playing field. I really like that. So we pay for data at B2C2, but the only data we pay for is the CME, because in real markets, you've got to pay for data and it's quite expensive, whereas everything else is free. That, that's something I think is, is really cool for crypto, because even if you, I mean, if you want to be a big market maker now and you want to have a client business, yes, you, you're not going to be able to do that unless you have a ton of capital and you know 50 plus people but if you just want to run a strategy you want to be more like a day trader well yeah you can like two guys in a garage if you think you have a good idea you can just get all the data for free you can connect very easily to those exchanges and and you can prove yourself i think that's really cool actually and that's something that like that ship has sailed in conventional markets for a very long time but crypto you still got that ethos which i which i think even if i'm not like a big bitcoin evangelist i think that's one of the features of the market that i really really like do you think that's going to maintain or do you think that's going to chip away with the years? I think it's going to maintain because when you think of like a Coinbase, you guys have seen the news, IPO, $100 billion. Good for them. Why is Coinbase worth uh, $100 billion? I think it's because they've got 20 million users. It's not because they've got a fast matching engine that caters to HFTs and, and whatnot. In fact, um, it was reported, was it summer 2019, that they had a team of 50, 50 engineers in Chicago. They closed it all. They completed, they got rid of everyone. Um, I heard it cost them something like 50 million that they put, they put in that effort. And they just realized, I think, well, guys, yeah, we want to IPO, want to be a big firm. What's the real value? What does Coinbase bring to the table? And what it brings to the table is 20 million users that have made, for a lot of them, never traded. So they're getting in with crypto, but maybe you don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe in five years, you'll be getting your uh, commodities trading or stocks trading on, on Coinbase. 
And so that's the value. That's all that user base. The fact, the fact that you know you can have, you have institutions also trading on Coinbase, I think it's a minor, minor part of their business. And in fact, I think if you read the, that's called an S1, I think, right? With the SEC, with the filing, it really shows that their institutional business is not really big at all. Um, and so the all those platforms, that's the lifeblood, is the retail traders, right? So if you tell them, well, you're going to have to pay for data. And by the way, you're going to have like three tiers. You're going to have like institutional and then medium and then retail. And the retail guys get worse data. I think that just doesn't fly. It just doesn't fly. I think it would not be good. And the users would not take that kindly to give favor to institutions. I think fee tiers, where the more volume you do, the better the fees. That's one thing. But to actually have some kind of pay, you know, pay to play, I think that that would not not work and I, I so I, I don't anticipate that any of that's going to change for the foreseeable future yeah, that's really nice i i like that fact a lot too it's just it feels like a smaller space and something that you can kind of put your your hand on while the traditional markets feel much much less so to me anyway and i mean i didn't really trade the traditional markets before crypto so maybe i'm naive on that front but i felt like it was much easier to get information in crypto than in the traditional markets as well. For sure. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I wonder which direction that will go in. But while we're on the topic, quickly before moving on, of course, um, to what I'm sure a lot of people are here to listen to, um, there are a lot of misconceptions among retail traders as to what the functional role of a market maker is. Uh, Sometimes that term in itself will bring up all these uh, negative connotations of someone, you know, wicking you out of your leverage position before the market moves away. You know, this this evil entity which is supposed to make life difficult. Uh, of course, the truth is not that. Uh, so, for those who want a professional understanding, or you know, from uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, of what a what the role of a cryptocurrency market maker is, um, what would that be, or how would you clarify yeah. that? I'm reminded the, the the Reddit forums. I used I used to I love to lurk there because um, people were going nuts about market makers and that back in the day the OK coin wood chipper um, they would kind of take retail traders and put them in the wood chipper and I was I love those memes and and I used to, I used to be like a bit of a troll and um, and talk shit on those forums especially like uh, Bitcoin markets on Reddit and um, and I remember well. No one's got my handle. Uh, no one knows who I am there, thankfully, because I, I talk too much shit, except for my good friend Zin Taket, who's at uh, FTX now. And so he, he likes to, from time to time, sort of bring up some stuff I used to say on the, the forum. And the people there were really going crazy about the market makers. But if you want to know what a market maker does, yeah, think of what I, what I was facing on eTrade.com. I needed to trade, and then there was no one to trade against because the guy had given up. Well, someone's got to do it, right? Like if you're going to put some prices up on an exchange, it just doesn't happen that two people randomly meet at the same time, one buyer, one seller, and and they know what the the price should be. So you can look at it from first principle. Maybe like you're not really looking to go long or short Bitcoin, but you're seeing that someone's got to to put those prices up on the platform. So what you do, you say, well, I, I think the price is worth X, I don't know, Bitcoin, 45,000. So I'll place a bit a bit below that. I place an offer a bit above. And I guess maybe I'll buy, maybe I'll sell. I, I don't know. If someone happens to come and sell to me, I'm going to be slightly long. Maybe I lower my price a little bit so that I can get, get rid of my inventory. 
And then maybe someone's going to take me out. Then I, I capture a small profit. Hopefully the, the price doesn't move in the meantime. And I just keep, I keep, I keep doing that. And you see that it makes a bit of money, especially in a nascent inefficient market. But then other competitors start doing that. You need to get more efficient, more automated. So you, you start coding up, you start getting the market data automatically, posting orders automatically, having some simple rules, then everything gets more complicated. Um, then you start needing more balance sheets so you're going to increase your balance sheet, borrow some coins, borrow some fiat so that you can put up bigger orders on the exchanges. Then you're going to have multiple exchanges where the prices are not going to necessarily going to be in line. Um, so you need to take that into account. How do you aggregate different exchanges to figure out what the right price is, some sort of mid price around which you, you make markets. So it, you can really think of it iteratively. And when you think of it like that, it doesn't sound so nefarious. And it just, of course, it becomes extremely sophisticated in a, in a more mature market. And now the Bitcoin market is actually quite sophisticated in that respect. In fact, if I've got one piece of advice for retail traders is when you get started, it's pretty better that you actually take, that you cross the bid offer, especially on certain platforms. Actually take a BitMEX. On a BitMEX, it's not a good idea unless you're really experienced to actually place passive orders at the top of the book in order to capture the rebate. Because when you look at the microstructure of BitMEX, it's an exchange that has a high tick size, meaning that the minimum price increment is actually quite big. It's 50 cents, which obviously now that Bitcoin is so high doesn't seem so big. But you have to remember, it was like that when, when Bitcoin was $3,000. So that was a big increment. And at the same time, you get a rebate. So capturing that, that bid offer, being at the top of the book, making markets, buying, selling, it's very valuable. So what you find is that the fastest HFTs, they actually compete on speed to be the first to be there at what we call the top of the queue. Because when you've got the top of the book on a BitMEX, you know, I don't know, bit 45,000 and $45,050 uh, offer, there's actually lots of orders there, right? It's not one single market maker. but when there's a, a trader that comes and takes against the, the orders in the book, it's the person, is the, the player that got there first that's going to be filled first, right? And so the dynamic that you find is that if you're a retail trader, you're not going to be fast. Even if you have like an algo trading uh, system, it's not going to be as fast as the fastest player. So you're always going to be at what we call the back of the queue. And so if you're, if you're at, you, at the back of the queue, you have to think of it very simply you're only going to trade when the top of the book, the level you're sitting at, is going to be taken out entirely, right? Like, unless it gets taken out entirely, if you're at the back of the queue, you're not going to get filled. And so if you're slow, you tend to only get filled when the market is actually moving a couple ticks, right? And, and that's what we call adverse selection. And so if you're a retail trader and you want to trade on BitMEX, I really recommend that you have a, a taker strategy there. Now, if you look at an exchange like a Binance, where the tick size is very small, it's like one cent. Well, if it's one cent, you don't really have like a stable top of the book. And you really see that on like on, on BitMEX, the market doesn't move often, right? It kind of stays at the same price level and it moves from time to time because of the tick size. But on Binance, because it's only one cent, it moves all the time. It's like random. It's, it's you know, very volatile. So if you place an order kind of around the top of the book, you're actually maybe just sitting between two other orders. You're not in a queue, right? You're not like behind dozens of HFTs in big sizes. And so an exchange like that, maybe it makes more sense if you want to run a passive strategy there because you're not going to suffer that much 
from adverse selection as you would suffer from, from it on BitMEX. And actually, interestingly, when you look at the fee structure, people tend to think if, I'm, if the maker fee is low, then I'm better off being a maker. It's actually not true in, uh, in my opinion, because if you look at the BitMEX, the negative maker fee, i.e. the rebate, actually incentivize HFTs to really put like big orders at the top of the book. But on a Binance, because there's no such rebate, it doesn't incentivize the, the real big professional market makers as much as it does on a, on a, on a, uh, on a BitMEX. So you're actually counterintuitively, if you make as a retail user without like fancy systems on a Binance, you might actually lose out on average less in adverse selection actually because the fee is a little bit higher. So there's like a couple microstructure ideas for your, your listeners um, that also help understand the mindset of a market maker. And now actually you can maybe take advantage of that a little bit to lose less money against the bots. So I hope that's um, a couple of good examples that are useful for you guys. That was super interesting, yeah. I, I never thought about the, the Binance, um, like that, that you actually make more by having like by not getting the rebate, that's that's genius. Didn't even think about it before. <laughs> I like it a lot. It's Thank one you of those much. feelings where um, whenever I trade with passive orders, um, like especially from time to time on FTX, where I think yeah. when the tick size is one dollar on, on their perps, right? On the Bitcoin perp, it's a dollar. Whenever I get passively, whenever I get filled a limit order on FTX on Bitcoin, my stomach just sinks because <laughs> like the chances that it's a good thing, you know, just, even just observationally from experience without your market structure insight, which is awesome. Just, just, you know, seeing that reflected in my own trading as well. Like when I get in those um, large tick size contracts, whenever I get passively filled, um, you know this creeping feeling that, like, you know, it's almost a, it's almost a bad omen. The fact that, um, you know, my position's now in effect. So I totally get where that comes from. I had no idea it was. You know, my my strategies don't vary. Uh, interestingly enough, my order types according to the tick size. But that's definitely something both for us and also our listeners to look into. So that was awesome. Uh, Don, yeah, it's I think great. We've got some homework to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great that you have the, the right intuition. And actually, the mirror effect of that is the taker fee. Actually, the higher the taker fee, what it means, it actually makes it worse for the for the makers because on a BitMEX, in order to cross a bid offer, a fast, sophisticated like quant fund would need a big a big signal that's more than the seven and a half bids that last I checked it costs to take on BitMEX. And so when the market moves, it can it does move, right? And so you also have to consider, okay, how big is the edge that the taker needs to have in order to think that it makes sense to go and lift my order. That's that's kind of like the, the mirror effect of what I uh, described earlier. Yeah, that's where the, where the big moves come from then. Like the no moving into big move, right? <laughs> yeah. So counterintuitive yet so logical. It's one of those things, right? Definitely something to, to pay more attention to. Um, that's awesome. I, I'm sure, I mean, I'm very grateful for that. I'm sure our audience uh, will be as well looking into our strategies. I think generally in crypto, kind of fees, tick sizes, uh, all of those structures generally get overlooked a lot uh, on the retail side of things. Um, most of the analysis tends to be, well, how cheaply uh, can I take? Or even on the other side, it's like, oh, well, I get a maker rebate. So I'm just going to try to do that to lower my cost of trading. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of the times the opposite can actually be true, which is super interesting to look into. Um, fantastic. If everyone's comfortable, um, I'd like to move on to discuss the hot potato of the of the week or of the last couple of weeks, uh, which is GBTC. 
So, you know, this isn't a product which I imagine a lot of our audience will be actively trading, uh, but it's one that will inevitably come up on their radar, both on the way up and also on the way down when it comes to Bitcoin's price movements. So premium was running hot uh, and, and normally GBTC um, trades at a premium historically. And then, you know, the same headlines come out when it uh, trades at a discount or negative premium. Um, I want to kind of start from first principles when it comes to this product before looking at the maybe implications of the premiums, discounts, who's affected, does it mean anything, etc. Um, so you're obviously on the institutional side. What is GBTC and why would uh, an institutional uh, investor want to get Bitcoin exposure via this instrument as opposed to just buying Bitcoin outrightly? Yeah. And and Mitt, I can go out on that topic for hours. So you stop me if you think we're going too deep, right? <laughs> certainly, um, certainly. The, so without being, I'm not a total expert on that, right? Because, you know, um, you've got asset management. That's one big field, you know, market making. That's another one. But um, anyway, so GBTC, it's a fund. It's a fund. So people can pull their money and and uh, and invest in Bitcoin together. Uh, there's an, obviously an automated way that, that it actually happens is, you know, you buy it in the markets. That's one way. Or you actually bring in Bitcoins and they, there's what's called a, a creation in kind. So you get shares in return for your, your Bitcoins. But if you go if you go back to, to basics, it, it's basically like a, a normal ETF, uh, which everyone knows what, what's an ETF on your, on your channel. Um, there's one slight difference, though. It's not actually an ETF meaning that the way that you create or redeem uh, shares in the ETF, you actually can't do that as um, smoothly with a fund like GBTC. I, I don't know exactly what the terminology of what that specific type of fund is called, but the way to think of an ETF is that it tracks an underlying asset. And in order to keep the price in line, well, we know that different products have different mechanisms, different um, uh, funds or, deri of der or derivatives, they have different mechanisms to keep the prices in line. In the case of an ETF, you've got arbitragers that when the price goes above the value on the of the underlier, they sell the ETF and buy the underlier, and vice versa, they buy the ETF, sell the underlier. And of course, if you do that, you can accumulate big positions, and you can be like super long an ETF of, I don't know, like a S&P ETF, and then you're going to be short all the individual constituents of the S&P. And you don't maintain a huge sort of offsetting position like that. So with an ETF, you can actually take your, uh, if you've got shares uh, of the ETF, you can go to the ETF provider and you can say, hey, actually give me an equivalent amount of the shares of the underlier uh, in the S&P 500. And so if you do that, you've got shares of the ETF, you're short the actual individual stocks, and when you go to the issuer, they give you the stocks when you can use the stocks to pay back your shorts, right? And so that's the mechanism that keeps an ETF price in line. That's the big innovation of an ETF. Um, it's, it's that mechanism. But with GBTC, um, my understanding is that it's just they didn't get the approval to be a full ETF. That's the big you know, elephant in the room. We don't have an ETF in, in the US uh, for Bitcoin. And so what they did was some sort of a halfway house, a halfway house where you can create on the on one direction, meaning you can bring Bitcoin to the table and they give you shares of the fund, but you cannot do the other way around, all right? And that's going to be, as you'll see, quite important. So it goes only in one direction. And the second important feature there is that, whereas for an ETF, when you actually do that creation or redemption of the underlying basket, 
you get basically the shares or the exchange happens like T plus two or within some short period of time. With GBTC and all funds of that sort of flavor, there is a lockup. You have to wait six months. So if you come with, and I think it's approximately one thousandth of, of a Bitcoin per share. If you come in with one Bitcoin, they give you approximately a thousand shares, but you can't sell them until six months have elapsed. So that's going to be quite important for the rest of the discussion. So far, so good? Yes. So far, so good. I think that's very clear. Um, for, for those also listening, um, one of the reasons that um, GBTC may be the preferable or the preferred way for a certain type of investor to get exposure. I mean, not only are there potential sort of built-in tax benefits, uh, but also the custody gets taken out of your hands, as far as I know. Um, GB, uh, actual uh, Coinbase custody, I think, does the custody solution uh, for GBTC's Bitcoin. So all of this kind of security and storage, then, you know, is it IRA eligibility, etc. All those benefits uh, come with GBTC. So that's, you know, potentially just flagging up uh, some of the extra bits and bobs uh, that may affect one's decision making when it comes to how to gain this um, Bitcoin exposure. And obviously, when it comes to the customers, it's those people who stand to uh, benefit from those um, mechanisms. So one of the things you mentioned yeah. is essentially the uh, redemption mechanism or the lack thereof. Uh, you know, I think I really like the term halfway house. You kind of mm -hmm. you can cr essentially create in kind but can't redeem. Um, what are the implications in your mind of the lack of a sort of rede redemption mechanism? Uh, and is that why we see um, GBTC trade at a premium or at a discount relative to the underlying? Well, I think if you, so it, it's been trading historically at a big premium. So I think you have to go back to what you had just said. GBTC is kind of an all-in-one. It's good because first of all, it's the oldest, I think, or more or less one of the oldest funds. So it's got that... Uh, it's got a good reputation, it, just longevity, right? Just longevity. It does the custody. Obviously, the fund does its own custody, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, it's also tradable with any sort of brokerage account uh, because it, it trades like on the pink sheets, right? Like the stuff you see in, uh, in Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and that, that, I don't say that in a bad way at all, you know, just like the small <laughs> yeah, stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's got uh, it's tax efficient in some context for U.S. citizens with retirement accounts. Uh, so all of that makes it like quite interesting. And in fact, just the tax aspect, it might mean that it actually always trades at a premium because if you can buy Bitcoin exposure and actually it's going to be better tax um, at, at the exit, well, maybe I actually you're willing to pay a bit more for that, right? Um, so that might even that in and of itself might justify a bit of a premium. Um, so all of that. It kind of makes sense that that product would have a premium. It does, right? I mean, it just is the first. It's um, so it's got big inflows because it was the first tradable in the US, tax efficient, yada yada. So that kind of makes sense that it would have a premium if you just start at that point. Now, what you mentioned, the fact that you can um, you can create but not redeem. Look at another product that depends on a similar mechanism it's a bit of an analogy but think about the bitmex swap and all the perpetuals right you guys all understand because you all trade the perps that when the price goes out of whack if it's too high the funding is expensive so if you're long you pay and if you're short you get paid and vice versa so that just incentivizes people to take the other side when the market goes out of whack yeah that's clear right like you guys all are super familiar yep. with that 
Um, now, imagine that on the BitMEX swap, it only worked like on the way down. So if the price is below, you get paid to be long, but if the price is too high, you don't get paid to be short. Well, just like naturally on average, the price would be a little higher, right? It, it makes sense, right? Like if the mechanism that keeps the price back in, back in line, it only works on one side of when there's a discrepancy, then on average, it, can, it cannot really undershoot, but it can overshoot. So on average, it's going to be a bit, a bit above, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I also think of GBTC. If you can only create, but you cannot redeem, you would think that in a lot of circumstances, it would actually trade not in line exactly with fair value. But now let's consider the actual direction of that. We all agreed just two minutes ago that the tax efficiency, the fact that it's a long-standing fund, yada, yada, it's got like 30 billions under management now. Well, you would think, okay, it tends to trade at a premium, all right? But think of the asymmetry between creating and redeeming baskets. So if it actually trades at a premium and you can create a basket, the trade there is that you take some Bitcoins, you bring them to the fund, they give you shares at what we call NAV, which is the Nest Asset Value, which is the, the value of the underlying Bitcoins in the fund. So you bring some Bitcoin, they give you an equivalent amount of shares calculated at the NAV, which is like a number they have to calculate by law every day. And if it's trading at a premium, well, now you've got the shares that cost you the real price of a Bitcoin that maybe you bought on Bitstamp, let's say. And now you can sell your shares. But see, so if you can sell at a premium, then you're making a profit. So that mechanism where you can create baskets in kind, where you can bring some Bitcoin and get shares of the fund, it actually is it's a route for arbitraging when the price of the fund is too high. So we've got an interesting dynamic there. At the same time, we said there's good reasons that the trade would trade that the fund would trade at a premium to its actual on the actual assets that it owns. But at the same time, we said there's a mechanism when it does trade at a premium to bring the price back in line. Now, the other way around, it actually doesn't work because if the fund trades at what we call a discount to the net asset value, what you would do then is you would actually buy shares of the fund and you would ask the fund if it were an ETF, here's a thousand shares please give me a Bitcoin, all right? And so you would do that arbitrage by buying the fund at a discount. So it would be maybe, let's say, like it's trading at $38,000 or something like that, um, or the equivalent of $38,000 per Bitcoin. So that would be roughly like 38 actual dollars per share. So you buy them at 38, you go to the fund administrator and you say, give me Bitcoins. And the Bitcoins, you then sell them on whatever exchange you like at around like $47,000 or something like that. And you're making that profit between you know, 38 and 47. But that mechanism actually with GBTC, the fact that it's not an ETF, that does not exist. And so it's really interesting that you've actually got strong reasons that the fund would trade at a premium with a mechanism to make it not trade at too much of a premium, but the other way around, it doesn't really work. So you've got that sort of weird situation where like it's a good trade to actually do that arbitrage, but until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of an actual mechanism 
to fix that discrepancy between the real value of Bitcoin and where the fund is actually trading in the market. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. Um, Don, I think you want to ask something. Uh, I've also got a uh, kind of comment. We, we've seen, so, so the one, the, you know, the, the fact that it only works in one direction, at least from a, uh, you know, mechanistically, uh, we saw the um, premium or I suppose a discount appear in the market, which peaked at, or the premium went to minus almost 12%. I think I've got 11.92 on my screen uh, and it's kind of recovered some of that. Uh, most recently was uh, minus 3%. If there's if the mechanism for the other way around isn't as explicit, so going from discount back to baseline, if you will, so we've got a way of pulling the premium down, but there's no explicit way for the discount to trade closer to where it should be, if you will. Uh, how does the market kind of correct in that regard, yeah, as we've seen recently? How, how do you interpret the closing uh, of the discount that we've seen recently? Um, so let's answer that question, but then we'll have to consider why there's a discount in the first place. Now, right? I mean, we, we, we understand why there was a premium, and now we need to, we, we'll have to discuss why there's a discount. But what, what's the mechanism that we could have? Well, that's where I'm really interested in what you guys have also heard in the market, because everyone's got a different opinion on that. Um, there's different ways that it could work. Some people say that it could be actually converted to an ETF at some stage in which case that mechanism would then start existing. I, I do not actually know what it takes to, act, to turn a, a fund like that into an ETF. I don't know if it's likely or unlikely, but that would be one, one way. It may be possible to, to actually um, have the other mechanism be, um, be put in place. My understanding is that there's a, they have a trust charter, they have some sort of um, you know, governing uh, documents, the fund. They will need to change that. And I imagine there's a governance uh, process there. Maybe they need to get people to actually vote, uh, whoever owns shares of the actual fund. Um, it's very pretty complicated, to be honest. Um, you know, ETFs and, and vehicles like that, they're not meant for the people who actually have stakes in them to, to change the governance, right? It, it's not meant to do that. Um, but that would be one possibility. It does beg the question, though. I don't have the answer to that. Uh, would really love to, to know what what's what. Um, why didn't do that in the first place? There must have been a reason, right? Because if you think of a, of, a, of such a fund, it kind of seems like a better design to have the bi-directional mechanism. So the fact that they didn't do that in the first place, they must have had a reason. Maybe it was easier to get the approval like that, which is kind of weird because when you think of it, it's not good for traders and, and investors that that mechanism doesn't exist. But, you know, the... The ways of the SECs are, are maybe complex. And, uh, I think they times. tried. If my, if my understanding of the history is correct, they actually had to set, mm-hmm. they tried to have a redemption mechanism in 2014 or something, uh-huh. or like an effective redemption mechanism. But then they had to, I mean, they got a you know, slap on the wrist from the SEC and then, then they had to settle wow. and basically cease and desist their version of the redemptions. Um, so I think it's almost, it ended up being by necessity, that it did actually start off, again, if my reading of the history is correct, I haven't got the documentation uh, immediately available, but from the research I was doing for this call, uh, they, they were offering a form of uh, redemptions initially, but then, I mean, the SEC made them stop, which is maybe explains the asymmetry that we see right now. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, well, let's think of other, of other ways. I guess some people say that... Um, so Digital Currency Group, which is that very big sort of a conglomerate of of um, of crypto companies run by Barry Silbert, that they could buy back shares in the in the fund. 
uh, or, or it's not really a buyback, but I guess just buy outright to try to bring the price up. Um, but it seems like that's like you kind of need you need unlimited firepower to do that. So I'm not sure if that if it's that realistic, but I, I've also heard that. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a speculative play, right? Where you're like, okay, this is such a discount that just makes sense to get. But then you're kind of gambling on a redeem feature being implemented, right? Because if you don't, you're going to be stuck in it. And um, yeah, if if nothing really happens, then you just bought something. You can't get rid of it, really. Mm -hmm. um, price not going to go up if... If people, because as far as my understanding goes, there's a bunch of funds and a bunch of people that got in for the arbitrage play, right? For the um, for the play of okay, GBTC is trading above um, Bitcoin. We're just gonna do this, um, buy a bunch uh, or like get a bunch of GBTC, and then kind of pocket the the premium. Yeah. And then that site got so oversubscribed that now you have a bunch of people just trying to get the premium, but it's trading below actually. So you're kind of stuck with a position that you don't really want because mm -hmm. they're just looking to kind of make money off of the premium. And then like, that's how, how I kind of make sense of it going that far into the negative. It's just people getting out, just take kind of taking their losses on, on, on the position that they originally just mm -hmm. wanted to kind of make an art play on. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, do you do you agree with that view or? Yeah, I think what we can do is we can so kind of explore the, the that big premium, uh, that big trade, and then we can consider that, go back to the fact that it's at a discount and maybe, okay, what can we do as traders to maybe try to take, is there a trade there mm -hmm. that, you know, us folks can do? So maybe we'll explore that uh, second. But first, so yeah, the, the premium trade, what is it? We all agree that, you know, there's like, there are some reasons that there might be a premium. And so you want to arbit. Actually, the premium, uh, maybe uh, you guys have the, the chart there. I mean, it went to like up to 50%, like really high premium. And when you think of that, it's like um, when you bring Bitcoins in and then you can you get shares that you can then sell, you've got a six-month lockup. So if it's trading at a 50% premium, you're actually looking at a return of 100% a year because it's you make that 50% in six months. It's quite high, right? And so a lot of clever funds started doing that in, in big sizes. Um, some of them have been public about it. I think, well, Three Arrows Capital, yep. uh, they mentioned that. Those guys are really smart. Um, and I think they were pretty early in that trade. I have to admit myself, so B2C2, we didn't do that trade because we thought it was um, a, li well, a little bit unclear, that sort of mechanism, the way it would actually work in the other direction also didn't have necessarily a balance sheet that we wanted to commit to that compared to other opportunities. Also, you have to go through actual normal brokers, like interactive brokers, which can be a pain in the butt. Um, also, I thought personally, I, I'll, I'll admit, you know, bad take there, but I thought it was too good to be true. I simply thought it's too good to be true. And the, the sort of explanations I got from the people, you know, some people also were pitching that, you know, telling people, hey, why don't you do that? Also, you can think of it. People at Grayscale, they want to get to increase the assets under management. So they were actually telling people, you know, there's that trade potentially you could do. And I, 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 
it it was too good to be true in my opinion and also the explanations i got they, they were not so convincing at the time so i didn't do it in hindsight obviously i should have done it or rather b2c2 should have done it um uh, at the time but we didn't others did and you have to fast forward a couple years where uh gbtc has become rather mainstream there's a big big player that got into that arb and i think this is really important we talk about this because it goes back to actually actually the ascension of the the DeFi lending um sort of new moment that we've had since roughly like late 2019. um so i've been thinking about this uh there's a there's a big player that's been doing that trade uh they're blockfi i think most of your listeners are going to learn about them yeah. or sorry know about them now I think I want to I want to state first that I, I I like the guys. I think they're maybe in a bad spot, and I wish them well. I hope that they end up you know doing okay on the trade. But it is the fact it is the case now that the trade isn't doing so well. And I think that the fact that like I like the BlockFi guys, we still have to talk about that trade, right? I think even if we're like you know we think it's kind of sad that they're stuck in that conundrum. You know, we still have to be able to talk about the trade, even though we're kind of talking against their book, because obviously the worse the, the, the discount becomes, the worse for them it is. But I've decided that, you know, we need to be able to talk about market issues, even though, you know, the folks that are experiencing them, you know, we're, we like them and we're close to them. So I just wanted first to sort of, quote unquote, disclose that. For sure. So let's, let's explore this. BlockFi is a company that borrows Bitcoin and uh, in other cryptocurrencies and they pay you a yield on your holdings um the yields are have actually been quite high and there's two ways that those guys those guys can make money one way is that they borrow from some holders and then they lend to some other folks um, that would need to borrow the same assets so it could be like uh, you know you borrow some bitcoin from a, a retail holder and then maybe some market makers some quant funds or whatever player needs the to borrow bitcoin so they're they're borrowing bitcoin maybe they want to go short i don't know and so both of those sides are going to have a yield so you capture the difference between the yield at which you borrow and the one at which you lend okay um but to me especially considering the sizes that they're talking about i mean they've got billions of dollars in in borrowings and what I know to be the size of the institutional crypto market, if we're just talking about like quant funds and market makers, I'm like, there's no way that if those guys borrow at an average of like 6%, they're able to lend as much as like a billion dollars of Bitcoin at like, let's say 10%. And certainly not wise maintaining some sort of a not too risky book. Because if you, when you lend to people, you'd have no guarantee that they pay you back. So you also have to account for defaults, bankruptcies. So that's been quite puzzling. And I think now a lot of people in the industry understand what's been happening, actually. What's been happening is that um, BlockFi, and they they made that public because you have to when you, when you start doing trades with funds in big enough sizes. What they've been doing is that when they get Bitcoins, they actually do that ARB or pseudo ARB, I suppose, with GBTC. So you, you're a retail holder, you put your funds on BlockFi, they pay you 5%. BlockFi takes your Bitcoin and then they go to GBTC, they do the creation of baskets, and then they wait six months and they sell at hopefully a premium. So that's just the trade that they've been doing. And based on their filings, they're, they're above a billion now. So that's 
quite a big size. And now it starts to make sense a little bit, right? Because if they're making like 50% or even, even like 20% every six months, that's a huge return. And if you do that on a billion dollars, then that, that can definitely subsidize the rest of your business for like two, three, four, five billion dollars. If what you're paying is around 5% to your lenders and you're making like a 50% annualized return, thanks, thanks to, to GBTC, right? So actually what's, what's happened is that I found it puzzling that the yields were so high, but now in hindsight that they've, uh, they've come out and said that uh, they were really big in the GBTC trade, it kind of makes sense, right? And the way that they disclosed it is that they had to file a, f uh, a form with the SEC called a 13G yeah. that you have to do if you own more than 5% of a fund. And inside, it contains of many shares they have. They've got 30, well, at the time that they had to file, which was as of year end, so 31st of December last year, um, you have like 45 days or something. So they, they published that like a month ago. Yeah, I've got it up for, for the audience oh, who are watching okay. the video. Yeah, it's a 5.66% ownership. Okay. Uh, and yeah, it's 36,156,000 shares, uh, just below three arrows, which is at 6.1% with 38,888,000. So yeah, that that's when you cross that 5% threshold, I think that's when you have to make that filing. So the, the, the date on this is mm -hmm. the 12th of February, 2021. So very recent. Yeah. So that's more than a billion. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> now, the problem that we have here is that there was a premium for a very long time. And sometimes people can think that those, like the structure you have in the market is gonna persist forever. But a big driver uh, in, in the, the disappearance of the premium now is that there's competition in the asset management space in crypto. You used to have GBTC as the only game in town. You've got, there's a Canadian ETF, um, you know, also coin shares in the UK, in UK they've got their own products as well. I mean, it's a, it's a broader marketplace now. You've got different options. And so if you see GBTC trading at a 20% premium, no matter the, uh, the actual tax benefits, you know, you're just going to invest in something else, right? And so naturally that brings all the, the potential premium that all those products would have more in line and, and overall slightly lower across the space, right? And so... The thing is that that doesn't explain the premium being minus 15-ish percent, but it might explain the premium being slightly lower. Now, what you have to factor in now is, I think something a lot of your listeners are going to be uh, aware of, is the, the sort of cascading problems you've got with like cascading liquidations, right? It's that, you know, some people have a position and then they puke. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter that the, the market doesn't really move that much. But when people start puking, then you know, the market orders that, that are generated by the exchanges, they push the market further and people keep you know, puking, puking, puking um, in cascade. And I think that's possibly what can happen on, uh, on, on GBTC now because there's actually a cost to owning the assets, right? There's a cost to owning GBTC, it's 2% a year. Okay, that's not that much, but you know, there's something. Also, if you take the position of BlockFi, well, what they borrowed in Bitcoin, it's that it's not it's not free, right? I mean, it's again, something like 5%. It's not so bad, um, but it adds up. You know, you have like the 5%, the 2%, um, you know, maybe they need to have like collateral to some people, maybe some of the loans are collateralized. So, you know, there's like a cost to everything there. So the thing is that 
if you look at the premium and you know you it used to be at 20 percent but now it's at five percent well guess what you're actually not you're, you're not breaking even and so that can force some players to actually be like guys we need to take the l here we need to just go and 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 exit this trade maybe even before other people exit this trade right and you know that's those that's supposed to be some sort of like a like a game of chicken because i'm pretty sure that if you wait well, I'm not pretty sure, but it could be that maybe if you wait a year, you know, it goes back to flat. It goes back to no premium, no discount, and then you can exit at a better price. But it it may also be that you know it goes to minus 15, minus 20, minus 25. Who knows? And at some point, there's some you know there's a risk officer, an investor, someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and be like, now you need to close this out, right? And so there's also that game of chicken where even if the premium might still be positive now. A lot of people are exiting, and that's putting a lot of downward pressure on the GBTC premium, which is now a discount. So you have there's like those that's a double whammy, really. Yeah, that's I mean the situation is it's it's kind of crazy because it's it's just off of I would say over leverage again. It's kind of like the 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 core issue with a lot of stuff that happens in crypto where you just it seems like a sure bet and then people over leverage and then it starts like turning and then people get wrecked. So could you see that kind of cascading even further than like 10, 15, 20%? Could you see it go to like 30, 40, um, anywhere there? Or do you think this is as much as it gets? Well, that's one of my guys actually used to be um, at one of the big um, ETF market making shops, uh, like conventional finance. And he said that even in um, quote unquote legacy products, you could see stuff trade above or below uh, net asset value for years on end, right? Uh, when some of those special situations occurred. So I don't know. I, I think there's it could have more, more uh, room. Um, now I've actually personally I bought some. I thought okay, minus fifteen percent. That's a good discount. So you know, we'll see what happens there. So full disclosure. Um, but yeah, it, it may be that it goes to minus 25%. Who knows? Um, that's, I think, I think time will tell. Um, it also depends on the situation of the players that have got that trade on, right? If you're a highly capitalized, you know, uh, big company with a huge balance sheet and that's just a fraction of what you do, then, you know, maybe you keep it on. Who cares? But if that's, you know, you kind of rely on that, um, it's difficult. There may also be some sort of like a vicious circle because the maximum, the pain point, if you're doing that trade where you borrow Bitcoin um, due to GBTCR, the pain point is higher price, but no premium. Why? Because if there's no premium, you have to wait and you have to, and, and you know, you need to wait until there's a premium and otherwise you're locking in losses. But also a higher price means that if there is any chance that some of your loans are collateralized, think about that. I'm borrowing Bitcoin from you, Donald, and I'm giving you Tether in, in return. Well, as the price goes up, the, the Bitcoin that you lent me, they're worth more. So you're going to ask for more Tether collateral or, or more whatever collateral it is. And if, I, if that's the case, well, I need to find a way to actually deliver that's uh, either fiat or stable coin collateral to you. And if I'm doing that trade in a big size, where well, really the only way that I have is by actually exiting the trade at a loss a little bit, right? Maybe I have to sell some of my shares that are uh, that have come out of lockup 
um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm losing money, but I'm that's that, or you you call back the loan and I'm I just blow up, right? Um, so that's um, that's a that's a real problem, I think. That dynamic where at the same time you've got the price that's really high now, and there's no premium. You can also think of it as a correlation trade. You know, people have pretty also been thinking, well, you know, if we do this trade, then yes, sure, there's a risk that we get some margin calls on our collateralized loans. But if the price goes up, that's when we're going to get those margin calls. But at the same time, the premium is probably going to blow up as well. So we're going to make a ton of money. So it's probably not so bad. Um, in finance, that's what you tend to call right way risk, right? When there's a correlation between two things and when there's a risk that materializes on one dimension, you're, you're making money on another dimension. So it's kind of not so bad, but that's a correlation trade. So the correlation can go the other way around. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We've got Bitcoin at 50,000 um, at, at sort of the tail end right now of a, of a huge rally. And at the same time, the premiums all but disappeared and it's negative. So I think that's also something that they did not entirely well, some participants did not foresee, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Um, with the trade that, that, that you've put on, um, what have you kind of figured out are the risks? So time-wise, if it takes too long, you're paying, right? So yeah, you have, you pay. yeah. yeah. Uh, and then it's also, okay, is it even going to go back? I mean, I would assume it's going to at some point, but mm -hmm. I mean... There's no guarantee, right? As long as they're not adding a redeem feature or if it doesn't turn into an ETF, like it doesn't have to return to, to neutral, right? Yeah. I, I think that, um, well, I got, I did a small size, right? Just P in, it's not B2C2, by the way, just, just me on my own account. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I figured, okay, well, minus 15%, a 2% a year, hey, I got a couple of years. Uh, that you can sit it out, right? I mean, sure, there's the cost of capital for you. You know, you're locking up funds, but you know, you might actually have, you know, maybe you're out in two months, and uh, and that's a nice a nice return. Um, but if you're out in five years, I mean, yeah, you know, you'll have lost most of the most of the profit in in management fees to the 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 sponsor, but it's still not so bad, right? I reckon at a slight discount of like two to four percent, yeah, maybe it's not so great, right? And I mean, obviously not financial advice. You guys do your own research, but there's a level at which you know you feel like you can you can sit it out. I think one of the if you look at the very long term, the risk is that in reality there might not ever be a, a mechanism. And if there's no sense that there will ever be a mechanism, I think what happens is that. It's going to go, I mean, the, pre, the, the discount might go to like minus 80%. And in that case, what happens is over the next, maybe, you know, basically roughly 50 years, the so Grayscale, the, the sponsor, is just going to capture the 2% fee every year, year after year, until the fund is basically empty. Um, and that's actually interesting to your listeners who want to look at this. The way to see the, the impact of the fees is that the net asset value is a number of Bitcoin per share. It used to be one thousandth of a Bitcoin per share. And every time they, they deduct the fees, actually the number of Bitcoin per share, it goes down a little bit. So that's kind of how they, they actually take the fees out, right? It, it's yeah. interesting. You can look it up on the website. Um, but so they might actually just take the fees and that's it for the next 50 years. So the trade is also that you're kind of betting on the value of the reputation of Grayscale and Digital Currency Group because if it if if that really happens, I mean that's the end of the reputation. You know, it just 
that's not it's just not good right so a lot of people also feel that something's got to give it can't be uh, I, I think someone uh, on twitter austerity sucks said it's a failed product it's a failed product so you've got to do something um, if you want to keep you know your reputation intact and and your other products that you have because dcg it's a big group um actually credible so i think that's also a bet that you're making and, and personally I, I feel you know i felt comfortable about um enough about those guys that um, you know they would at some at some point intervene in one way or another and that there was enough runway so to speak in terms of the discount that it made sense um but yeah you got to do your own research by the way i made a mistake uh one that i i, I mentioned um, earlier on the podcast that's around on the on the video is that i actually placed limit holders because i was a bit greedy you know i was like nah it's volatile the bid offers point kind of big but like i'm, I'm just gonna sit at kind of around the bid, right? And then, you know, price was like $30, got filled a little bit, and it started going back to like 39, 40, 41. I was like, ah, crap. I should have crossed the bid offer. So classic mistake, right? I think I, I thought I was clev more clever than the, the market makers there, um, Citadel and the like. Actually, I wasn't. So, you know, even if, if you do that for a living, you can make silly rookie mistakes like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find the entire situation super interesting because, like you said, with the reputation, I find it very unlikely that nothing happens. Um, mm -hmm. But then again, if you think about it, uh, the more kind of shares they have outstanding or like in general, um, the more money they make, right? So that's right. So they kind of like giving the, if they're giving people the chance to redeem and um, then you have less shares out there. Um, you're obviously going to make less money. But I still think, I, I kind of agree with you there. I'd be very surprised if they're just betting or like losing, or if they would be willing to lose their reputation over something like this. Um, mm -hmm. If anything, it would be probably a regulatory issue, right? Like Cred said earlier, if they can't make it happen, then you have a situation where they would, they probably would like to, but at some point, like if they can't, what happens then, right? And then, then I could see like it go really bad. Mm-hmm. But who knows if that's like, that's why, where I'm like, okay, you need a super, super expert for that. And I don't think there are really any um, that you could ask if that can happen or how likely it is. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just a bet on, okay, how reputable are they and can they kind of fix this uh, issue? And I, I have no answer to that. I really want to get into, into that trade as well. But for me, it's been really hard to figure out like how much at a discount has to be for me to get like involved. Um, because in the end, like what I plan to do is just sell some Bitcoin, buy some GBTC, and then just write it out. Right um, on. But it's like, like if you if you think about it in crypto, if you put your money somewhere and in a long term play, maybe it takes like two, three, four years to till you get out. It's kind of your money is not necessarily working elsewhere, right? So you also have to consider that fact um, that you could be doing something else with your money and mm -hmm. uh, it's now stuck in something that's not going to move for a year or two. So, yes. Yeah, but I think you're thinking about it the right way because that's the simplest trade. And if you're a, a Bitcoin hodler anyway, you know, you maybe you sell some and you buy back the same amount by GBTC and, you know, you were going to hang on to the, the coins anyway, probably, right? So yeah. it doesn't matter if at least those are your circumstances that, you know, you need to wait maybe a year or two before it, it goes back to flat. Yeah. I think that's a, that's probably the easiest trade and, and might be a good one. Yeah. I mean, 
Sorry, Craig, go ahead. You sure? Uh, I mean, I, I'm yeah. just saying I wouldn't just observationally, I wouldn't mind if this spurned some positive regulatory change, seeing that mm-hmm. the ETF denials have created this set of circumstances um, where you kind of have this, as you mentioned, I love this term, halfway house of an ETF. We have then big players getting trapped uh, in this ARB trade, and then maybe that has systemic risk for crypto. I mean, that's a slightly more far-fetched argument, but, you know, there is a mechanism for it. Maybe that's the needed catalyst to say that, you know, you've got this 30 plus 36.5 billion uh, AUM uh, diff- kind mm-hmm. of de facto ETF, which doesn't have the necessary, you know, the, the regulatory structure to be an ETF. Maybe we can actually uh, work towards uh, a real one to avoid these types of issues and kind of everyone's better off, especially with more professional, bigger sizes, institutional participation. I just think it kind of sets the scene quite nicely uh, for uh, a product which actually does its job. I mean, there's precedent in Canada. That ETF seems to be very popular, although I haven't read the exact technical specs. Uh, I just wouldn't mind a, a happy conclusion to this where we actually get one, if that makes sense. Well, for sure, Craig, if you look at um, from a sort of investor protection perspective, which I understand is one of the roles of the SEC, is you've got people that are pretty a little bit levered on that. You know, they, they, they're, they're long that thing on margin. And so if the premium goes negative, even if Bitcoin doesn't go down, like some people might be margin called, although, you know, quote unquote, their thesis was the, was the right one. You know, Bitcoin might stay where it is, but then if the premium continues to go lower, yeah, people might get um, liquidated. I mean, I don't think that would be a good outcome, right? I mean, it just seems kind of very unfair and, 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 and a flawed design to have a, a possibility that your underlier actually doesn't move and you know you get you get closed out at a, at a big loss that that just doesn't sound right to me yeah fully agreed i mean i've in general heard of whispers in in the bush work that it might become the first one um mm-hmm. so they might convert it but it's always like in crypto it's it's kind of weird you you hear the, those whispers and then at some point they kind of come true it's the same with with uh, tether where I heard a lot of people talk about that the news is going to be kind of okay, it's going to be a slap on the wrist. And then half a year later, um, it actually is exactly that. And uh, people were just talking about it a lot. And then you have other situations where stuff gets talked about and it just doesn't happen and you're just sitting there. But, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It would just make sense, right? You have this, you have this thing already there. A lot of people are already looking into it, trading it, and why not just make it the first one if if you want one at all? So the question becomes, do you want an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF, or do you do you not? And I think if you do, it makes a lot of sense to just kind of say, okay, Grayscale, go ahead, do it. And I think they would, right? I would be very surprised if they didn't take that. Yeah, be their saving grace. I mean, just looking at ETFs in traditional markets, you've got like the ARK, for example, which, you know, there's a lot of criticisms of how liquid ARK actually is then buzz i don't know if you you know the portnoy etf which is supposedly this algorithm uh, which balances according to the most popular stocks on social media so it's not like the standards are like incredibly high um for you know these instruments and the past rejections have talked about the you know manipulated nature of bitcoin etc etc um but you know if you're seeing this uh de facto etf or trust with 30 plus billion um at, at a certain point almost everyone wins if if you let it function like one and you avoid, as um, Max mentioned, all these levered scenarios where your thesis can be correct, but just from um, 
just because of the way it works, <laughs> just the way the trust is set up, you, you know, you get margin called or end up in tricky positions. I, it just makes sense to me as an outcome, uh, but maybe maybe I'm completely wrong. Interestingly enough, just on a very quick aside, uh, I was going through the Twitter of the CEO of BlockFi, Zach Prince. He was answering a question asked by Ben Davenport, who says, BlockFi, Zach, can you say what percent of the GBTC shares that BlockFi holds are held for its own book as opposed to held as collateral? Uh, to which Zach replied, we sized our activity there appropriately and always expected volatility in the premium slash discount. It's actually creating a new interesting ARP opportunity for some of our institutional clients now. Just another dynamic aspect of crypto markets, uh, exclamation mark. Uh, and that was today. Well, uh, earlier today, uh, which is kind of the answer you'd expect, not really saying much, but at the same time, I, I don't think it's probably in the best spot to speak in great detail with. with it's a very good point, actually. And I think maybe I, I was um, uh, blindsided a little bit there. It is also possible. You can imagine that they're actually helping pe other people do that trade. And then they're just holding on to the shares of, as collateral, um, in which case they would be exposed to the to the premium, but in an indirect way, in the sense that the people they help accomplish that trade, they actually need to, if they're underwater, they need to top up. And so they would only lose money to the extent that they're not able to close out the position of the of the of their clients um, you know, before they're too much underwater. Now, a question I would have then is. What does it mean for them to hold shares as collateral? So, you know, I think you guys understand what, what it would be, right? Some institution or whatnot, someone goes to BlockFi, they say, hey, you know, I'm going to borrow Bitcoin from you. I'm going to do the G GBTC trade and I'm going to collateralize you with the actual GBT shares that I get, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think the big question would be, are BlockFi actually allowed to hold shares as collateral on behalf of other people? Um, and that gets kind of technical, but if they were holding shares as collateral, would they actually show up as being to their beneficial ownership? Like, so would they have to report in the sense that if they actually had all of those shares, but they're not, they didn't buy them, they're, or rather create them, they were just collateral held by counterparties, would it actually be reportable like that? Um, you've got in, in real markets, quote unquote, that concept of title transfer. Title transfer is when you actually, when you give collateral to someone, you actually give them the title to the, to the, the asset. So they became the owners, like the real owners. They do have an obligation to return the collateral to you in the future. But in the meantime, you're not the owner of your own collateral in you anymore. You've given it to someone else temporarily. And so when you have the, the title that's transferred to you, typically it's like normal ownership, so you would, you would have to report. But a lot, of the, a lot of collateral agreements, they're actually not, they don't necessarily transfer the title, they transfer um, some sort of right to kind of capture the collateral if things go wrong. Uh, they give like what's called security over some collateral. And those two things are actually, you know, they're different. So it would be a really good, um, interesting, it would be very interesting to know if the collateral is like that under title transfer or if it wouldn't appear under title transfer. And I think maybe the answer would rely on whether BlockFi has got any regulatory licenses that would allow them to do one or the other. So that would be quite interesting to figure out, actually. Yeah, it's the question of enforcement rights versus proprietary rights, um, which mm -hmm. would be pretty... Yeah, yeah I, I don't know how they, what, I, I, you know, what their book looks like. Uh, it'd be really interesting. I think either way, 
Uh, I'm hard pressed to find a like as much as it you know as positive as it sounds to say new ARB opportunities etc. I think BlockFi's life and their partners' lives are a lot easier if there's just that premium and that traders in, in its most straightforward shape um, as opposed to uh, what we've been having uh, more recently. But that's definitely one to watch. I personally don't yet see any great evidence of some massive um, systemic risk, um, but you know. With, with lending, I might just be a bit of an old boomer in that regard, but I mean, crypto lending generally still makes me pretty uncomfortable. Um, March made that very clear, you know, trustless or trustless or not. I'm not fully sold on uh, on those structures. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, Doug. Would you, do you have any um, kind of high interest crypto accounts where you kind of keep your um, Bitcoin or, you, you know, is it very much in your hands? Because I'm not sold on the idea yet. I could be closed minded though. Now, for me, I, I just rather have Bitcoin. I mean, it depends, right? I always have an issue with, okay, this, there's no risk involved in this. When, when someone says, okay, yeah, this is free money, you just have yeah. to. It's the same, it's the same thing where, where I like to disregard that kind of stuff and then miss out on opportunities. Um, I, I was pretty much in the same position. I could have, could have gotten in on a lot of the GPT, BTC stuff. I mean, everyone was around. Everyone could have gotten in, right? Um, but for mm -hmm. me, it was like kind of scary hearing, okay, it's risk-free. There's, there's no real problem involved. Um, and I kind of get that same feeling for a lot of the lending stuff. Now, it's been really good, right? If you think about the last year, basically. Yeah, with after, DeFi especially, right? Yeah, with, with after the March crash, it's been, it's been really good kind of um, just making yield. And uh, mm. a, lot of, a lot of my friends have been basically doing that. With uh, USDT, you can do it with a lot of stuff, and uh, it's been doing really well. But I've always struggled with it a little bit um, to yeah. just do it in, in in big size. So I don't know. What do you think about Max? Well, I have I have a rule of thumb that's good for traders to to keep in mind. Is that and I used to be actually an interest rates trader focused specifically on cross currency, meaning the different in, difference in interest rates between pairs of currencies. Uh, that was my big specialty. So there's always a high yielding and a, and a low yielding currency. You know, you take any two currencies, one's gonna have a higher yield and the other one's gonna have a lower one. And so what that gives you is the currency that actually is um, uh, trading at a premium like on futures, is, it is sort of by definition, the currency with the, that should have the lower yield. And that's like a bit of financial math, but people can figure that out from Wikipedia articles. But really what it means is that when there's a bull market and people want to go long Bitcoin, then the high yielding currency should be fiat or stable coin. And the low yielding currency is Bitcoin. When it's a bear market, it's the other way around. The high yielding currency should be Bitcoin and the low yielding or relatively lower yielding currency should be fiat or stable coins. So in a market like this, where it's all the perps are trading at a premium, the futures are, you're not supposed to get a big yield on your coins, if any yield at all. And when it's a bear market, now you're supposed to get a bigger yield on your coin. You can think of it a different ways. Maybe in a bear market, people want to borrow coins to short, yada, yada. It's all kind of one and the same thing. So big bull market, not supposed to get interest on your coins, but you can get interest on your fiat and then vice versa. And the difference 
if you do have a yield on coins, but we're in a bull market, then it means you're taking credit risk. It's just what it is. If there is a high yielding and a low yielding currency, but you look at an opportunity where there's a high yield that on the currency that's not supposed to be high yielding, then it means you're taking credit risk in one way or another, or you know you found a perpetual motion machine or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And of course, there are like slight exceptions to that, and you have to kind of look at the fine print. But in reality, right now, if you're getting a really high yield on your coins, you have to step back and, and think, well, what's the source of the yield? Who is paying on the back of that yield? And that's also what I was I kept thinking of BlockFi. How do they actually monetize those those yields? Because I'm looking at the market, raging bull market. Um, and I'll give the example of B2C2. I have B2C2 as like institutional crypto loans for coins at 1%, right? So that's what institutional players are paying for crypto now. They're paying, well, maybe some are slightly higher, but you're talking like down to 1%. So just saying, well, you know, we borrow from retail and then we turn around and lend to institutions. Well, okay, okay. But, you know, you look at the B2C2, 1%. Uh, Three Arrows Capital, they also said on different podcasts, they're also borrowing at super, super low rates, and that's unsecured, actually, so with full like credit risk. Um, same with B2C2. So, you know, the more institutions I speak to, the, the more they're not really interested in borrowing at like 10% just to get some coins when we're in a raging bull market. Of course, if the market turns, it's going to change, but like the current situation didn't make sense to me. And so understanding that uh, GBTC ARB now, it's starting to make sense because... Of course, if someone's looking to make like a 50% return in six months, they'll be willing to pay whatever, 5, 10, 15% maybe even. But really, where's that yield coming from? It's coming from that borrower's expectation that they're going to capture a huge premium. But guess what? That premium is not for sure. It's not a sure bet. And so part of that sort of excess yield is coming from that risk. Yeah. Very well said. I mean, it's always when the yields go really high. And I, I mean, people have seen that on the DeFi stuff. Um, the stuff that has the highest yield usually just rug pulls <laughs> at some point. <laughs> it's just how, how this stuff works, right? I mean, you're taking huge amount of risk to get that. And um, I'm always surprised when people tell me, okay, I'm getting this massive yield there. This is This is so nice. And I'm like, okay, I mean, that makes me a little bit afraid because, I mean, if you're getting that high yield, you're getting it for something and that is always involved like you always have risk there because no one's giving giving you just free money right it's not how it works so i yeah, mean were, were you guys big in the um were you around when when we had the big wave of exit scams and things like that like around yeah. like 2017 <laughs> 2018 we're like yes absolutely. i feel like the the, the rook pull now it might be the, the new exit scam right because when you think about it you would create a, like an ICO project and be like, oh, investing my coins is going to be amazing. And then, you know, you just exit scam like 10x and whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, those guys are funny. Um, but now maybe what you do is you create a contract, you say, oh, super high yield, like send all your money. And then, oh my God, we get hacked. But who's really doing the hacking, right? And you have to be pretty sophisticated to find the flaws of those contracts. I would imagine the best person to find a flaw in the contract is a person that's written it, right? I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. right? But maybe that like Rockpool is the new exit scam. 
Oh yeah, there's okay. a lot of speculation with a lot of the um, rug pulls, exploits, whatever it may be, uh, that some of them are just so sophisticated and require such intricate knowledge of um, the contract that the most, you know, almost on an Occam's razor type of level, uh, the most likely explanation or the most plausible one is that it's it, it has some inside element to it. So I think the, the rug pull exit scan just changes the mask it wears, but <laughs> ultimately it's um, similar principles like you mentioned. Which, which one was the um, the project that rug pulled and then they had to get like scientists on to kind of explain how they did it? Oh, I, I forgot. Oh, yeah, but... I, oh God, I, I forget as well, but this, that's the one where they said only a team of researchers. Was it Alpha? Yeah. Was it Alpha, the one which said... Uh, I, I don't I don't remember it but yeah those. yeah um, it, it's always when you when you can kind of count the people that could do the attack vector that they did that to kind of drain it all if if there are like 10 people that can do it i mean what's the chance that there's someone on the inside involved with it right very very high so yeah i i totally agree that's i i've always thought that is the most likely for most of them, just based on the fact that really, like with all these new projects, they're so cutting edge that there's really not that many people that could actually do it that quickly anyway, right? Because kind of getting into the project, kind of understanding how it works, and then finding a way to attack it is just so much easier if you actually set it up. Yeah, totally agree. Awesome. Max, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I've certainly enjoyed this conversation i'm sure our audience has as well um do you have any final notes you want to leave and uh, maybe some advice for new traders looking at the quantitative side some wisdom maybe where to find you anything yeah, yeah. you want to leave, impart yeah for sure I, I think that you know we're having a really good conversation here and that goes to the value of having like a circle of of folks that you can exchange ideas with as a trader you know information is is really a well for b2c2 kind of companies, you know, we're just kind of working off algos and speed and whatnot. But if you're more of, um, you know, you look at fundamental, you know, you're, you're taking even on or even on technicals, but just like longer horizons and just, you know, the next couple of milliseconds, it's really valuable to be able to bounce off those ideas with others. And so I, I really value following you guys on Twitter. I think it's good for any, anyone who's looking to, you know, to, to make a bit of a living in, in markets like these to have other people that they can speak to or just get ideas from uh, online. Of course, you know, you want to be mindful of people just shilling their books, uh, but it's super valuable. So I, I really like following you guys on Twitter. If people want to see me run my mouth on Twitter, as, as I frequently do, they can follow me. I'm at Max Bonen with two O's, uh, B-O-O-N-E-N. Um, and yeah, I, I also tend to talk about various stuff, or, you know, used to talk about US elections and things like that and what we could trade on the back of that. Um, yeah, so so very happy for people to come off and, and post comments on my CD tweets. And actually, I learned a lot of stuff recently on GBTC because I, I approached the, I hadn't looked at it, uh, and then I got people to to respond to my tweets and things like that. That was a really really good source of um, of uh, of edge, I would say. So if people want to do that, very welcome too. And other than that, I'm really glad you guys had me on the on your channel. Very good conversation, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Speaking to you again. Awesome. We look forward to it as well. Don, thank you. Max, it's been great. We'd love to have you back. And to our audience, thank you for listening. Make sure you do all the normal stuff, like, rate, subscribe, etc. You know the drill. That's all from us, and we'll see you next time. Gentlemen, thank you again. Cheers, guys. Cheers.